Welcome to Expanding the Continuum, a podcast exploring the clinical, ethical, and programmatic issues that emerge when providing HIV care to survivors of violence. We invite luminaries in the field to discuss the real implications of a health sector response to HIV and forms of intimate and patriarchal violence. This podcast is brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. I'm your host, Surabhi Kuke. Thanks for joining us. I am a true believer that we need to take PrEP and PrEP education out of the clinical setting and put it in the community settings because I think it's like building trust and rapport. And so one of the things that we've learned is DV advocates and agencies are really at the front line of doing this work and working with this population. And so it's just completely intuitive that we should partner. Welcome. We're delighted to have you with us on Expanding the Continuum today with Dr. Candice Backus and Dr. Tiara Willey. I'd love to invite you both to please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. Maybe we can start with you, Dr. Backus. Right. So I am Candice Backus. I am a pharmacist by training. Um, I did complete a residency at an LBGTQ plus friendly clinic focused on HIV prevention and treatment. And um, for the last two years, I really spent my time developing an HIV prevention program that was pharmacist led and ran in the state of Mississippi. Um, And so I am now transitioning out of that role and going to the dark side, as some call it, into pharma um, to do education and research in HIV prevention and treatment. Excellent. Welcome. Dr. Willie? Yes, I'm happy to be here. So my name is Tierra Willie. I'm currently a Bloomberg Assistant Professor of American Health in the Department of Mental Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, so I was trained as a social epidemiologist at the Yale School of Public Health. Um, my research focuses on the intersections of gender-based violence and HIV prevention for women, both domestically and globally. And for the past couple of years, I've really been asking this question about um, integrating trauma-informed care into HIV prevention for Black women in the U.S. Awesome. So really right at the intersections that this podcast is looking at and that we um, at Futures and and NNEDV have been thinking about uh, in terms of making healthcare safe for survivors, and in this case, HIV care. So let's begin with this term PrEP. Uh, Dr. Backus, can you tell us, tell us a little bit about what PrEP is, what does it stand for, when do we, when can it be useful, and it's how effective it is? Right, so PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, and the way I tend to talk about it to patients and to people is kind of, it's, it's like birth control, right? So it's your way of protecting yourself from HIV, and very much like Women choose to take birth control. Um, So it's kind of on that before a situation happens, this is kind of the way that we can protect ourselves. 
Um, and so it is very effective. It's about um, 99% effective if you take it correctly, which is um, averaging about five times a week, once daily. And so it's supposed to be used really when there is a potential exposure or a potential opportunity for an exposure. Um, I think sometimes we get it wrong when we talk about PrEP because we use this word risk. And whenever you tell somebody they're at risk for something, I think you put them on the defense, right? If you say you're at risk, I don't think it, it's, it's not something that's associated with anything positive. And so when you come to somebody and you say you're at risk for HIV, you're instantly putting them on the defense. And so I think we turn people off. But if we really just focus on the fact that a lot of people, most of us got here by having sex, then when we talk about, you know, protecting yourself from a sexually transmitted infection, it's something that falls in line with things that we do every single day. And so we have to really change the way we tell people about PrEP because it's not about a risk mitigation. It's really about just a protective mechanism because everybody's not going to tell us who they had sex with, if they're at risk for HIV, if they've had HIV, if they've been tested. And so this is really a way of protecting ourselves, right? Because like talking about your HIV status isn't the best foreplay. <laughs> yes. So how can we think about PrEP, I, I really appreciate you talking about it, frankly, in the context of sexual negotiation or thinking about protecting yourself before sex. But how does this interplay with survivors of intimate violence? Like, wh where do we see the opportunity as a safety resource? Um, so I, I think I completely agree with Dr. Backus and what she what she said. And I think this could be an amazing opportunity um, for women who are experiencing abusive relationships, given the right tools. So we so we can kind of think about partner independent HIV prevention is needed for women who are in abusive relationships, um, tools that they don't have to necessarily negotiate in a sexual encounter with their partner. And PrEP gives that opportunity. So women are able to actually use, unlike, unlike a condom where you have to use it during sex, PrEP, you don't have to use it during the sexual encounter. You can take it at any time of the day and she can still be protected from HIV infection. And so I think that's an amazing opportunity that PrEP gives women in abusive relationship that, that honestly no other kind of prevention tool is able to do. So what does the research so far show in terms of its application in this context for, for instance, women living in abusive relationships? So it's still, surprisingly, I think PrEP has been approved since 2012. So it's been available for individuals to use. But the research specifically at the intersection of partner violence and PrEP is actually very new. <laughs> in the past kind of like two to three years. So what we've what we've noticed, at least domestically, is that women who are in abusive relationships or have that history um, are really interested in PrEP once they learn about it. At the same time, they also talk about some concerns, like if my partner finds out that I'm using PrEP, what does that mean? Um, if we're both on the same insurance policy, you know, does he find out through our insurance company? Am I protected in that way? Honestly, for some women, 
they've actually never even been screened by a healthcare provider about partner violence. And one thing that we've kind of talked about with the CDC, because the CDC creates these clinical guidelines for who who's the best candidate for PrEP. And that's what individuals use. Um, and so we've talked to the CDC about how nowhere in the guidelines is there anything about screening for partner violence there's nothing about safety protocols for providers who find out that their um, patients are in abusive relationships and are using PrEP. And so <laughs> as an epidemiologist, and I know the research about partner violence and the risk for HIV infection, I'm just kind of like, we need to be having <laughs> more, we need to change the system. Because um, I think women are telling us, they're, they're asking us these questions that we don't have a system in play to address these questions, which is, you know, now we have um, commercials about PrEP and there's pamphlets about PrEP. And so if he finds out that I'm using it, how am I going to be protected? Where do I go? Where are the resources? And there's just hasn't been that integration yet. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's really important that as we continue this research that we think about the advocacy part for survivors. And if we want to promote kind of HIV prevention for this population, we have to be able to give them this amazing resource in a safe way. Mm, yes, you brought up a couple of really amazing points I want to go into a little bit more deeply. Well, Dr. Backus, if in your clinical experience, do you... Can, can you share a little bit more about what other kinds of barriers survivors of violence might encounter in being able to effectively prevent themselves from contracting HIV by using PrEP? Like what, what are, I, I, yeah, <laughs> your thoughts. So I think Dr. Willie brought up a lot of great points about barriers and kind of, she kind of talked a little bit about the barriers that exist. And I think the very first one is that when we talk about access to prevention medications, if you look at across the landscape in the United States, it's largely going to be provided by infectious disease specialists, right? So that, that already creates this huge stigma where if I want to get something to prevent me from contracting something, I have to go and see a specialist that's going to give me a very special bill. And that also is going to create maybe a stigma, right? So when I walk into an infectious disease clinic, there is a stigma that is associated with that clinic. So then, you know, that's going to create a barrier. If you go to your OBGYN or to your internist, there's another barrier because are they going to ask you for an HIV test? Are they going to say, hey, we're going to check your blood work and personally, the last time I went to my internist, I said, I want an HIV test because that was not included in the panel of, of labs that they were that they were running as, as standard procedure. And then I got a bill for $40 just for that HIV test. And so I think that creates another barrier, right? So there's a cost for the visit. I have insurance, but then there's a cost for this, this one lab that's creating another barrier. The fact that I had to make an appointment, right? So when we're talking about access to prevention services, Largely, the populations that are targeted for needing these prevention services are going to be people who, for the most part, they're going to lose money by going to an appointment because they're getting paid by the hour. Um, they're, maybe they don't have insurance or, like Dr. Willie said, maybe they're on somebody else's insurance plan, a family member, an abusive partner, and then it becomes this issue of will they find out? 
So, you know, I think that there's been a lot of a lot of focus on eliminating barriers as it relates to the access of medication, right? So we know that the manufacturers of the only one that's currently FDA approved, they have created all kinds of mechanisms to help reduce that cost or bring it down to zero, but actually getting access and having a test and being able to get all of these things taken care of in a timely manner and in a way in which is suitable for a person, I think we still haven't gotten there, right? So PrEP is this amazing tool, but you have to get tested every three months in order to stay on it. I mean, that is a lot, right? So if you ask me today what looks good in three months, I'm be like, sure, it sounds like a great day and time for me to show up. But in three months, that may not be the best time and day for me to show up. And then we're dealing with COVID. Is the clinic going to be open? Are there going to be things that have to be changed? And so the barriers, I think, while we have eliminated some, a lot of them keep coming back up and we're adding more to those barriers. And even also just having a bottle of pills, right? You have that prescription or that bottle of medication. And if anybody Googles that wording, it's going to say HIV. That creates another stigma, right? That's another barrier that we have. And so I think that as we get creative with trying to eliminate the barriers, we really start just kind of really replacing them. We're not really eliminating them. We have this list and we're pulling things out, but we're also putting them back in because we keep forgetting or failing to think about the things that people in the community are really dealing with, right? Exactly. And so I think we have to really be mindful of that. Can I can I also add um, that thinking about women who are also experiencing economic abuse, so they may not be able to make the financial decisions in their relationships, accessing PrEP becomes a super barrier for them, right? And also thinking about going back for these follow-up visits for HIV testing, they may get a lot of questions from their partner about what are you spending this money on? What do you need this for? And so that may actually make women less likely to even want to talk about PrEP or even bring up PrEP with their provider because they don't want to have to deal with the potential retaliation from their partner. And we've actually had some women kind of like talk about that in their quality, like we did qualitative interviews with women and they talked about that. And some of the women even posed the question of, you know, I can't even make decisions on how much money to spend on groceries. What makes you think that I'm going to be able to pay for PrEP or for the HIV test? So I thought Dr. Backus, that was a really important point for women who are experiencing economic abuse. And, you know, just to add one more thing, so we can move on to the next question. (laughs) While we have these opportunities where we've created processes for patients to come in, for women to come in and to get HIV testing and STI testing, and we've created these great avenues for them to get access to PrEP medication, well, what happens when they need treatment for a sexually transmitted infection, right? What happens if I now have chlamydia or gonorrhea or syphilis, right? Who's going to... You know, how am I going to get treatment for that? Because that's not included in a lot of these services, Um, at least, you know, in Mississippi, we'll test you for free. But we've created another barrier when it comes to being treated for a sexually transmitted infection that is not HIV because we send you to the health department and the health department's reputation is in the community is not good. Right. People, there's a stigma with going in there. They don't think that people are nice. They think that their business is being put out there, that they're, you know, that their um, protected information is not being protected. So 
again, we're taking things out and we're, we're addressing barriers, but then we're also creating other barriers inadvertently without really thinking about it. Mm. Can I add one? No, no, please go ahead. <laughs> one more quick thing, one more quick thing. Um, and I just, I want to go back to like just the relationship dynamic. I think one of the things is like, that's tough is like how complicated individuals' relationships can be and talking about that in the medical encounter. So like some women, some women are at risk for HIV, but they also feel like their partner is monogamous and that they're both practicing mutual monogamy. And so what we found is that women who believe that at least they're being monogamous, that they don't need PrEP, even though they te- even though behaviorally their partner are doing things that put them at risk for HIV. And so I think that's, that's a tough barrier that we as academics, and I want to say even in community partnerships, haven't quite figured out the best way to talk to women about um, being at risk for HIV because of their partner's behaviors, not necessarily their own behaviors. That's all. I'm done. Great. Thank you so much. You know, when you were talking, when both of you were talking, I was uh, remembering, you know, our work in health systems has so much been about what happens to the woman or the victimized person in an abusive dynamic around medical adherence. Like you said, in order for PrEP to be effective, they need to take it at minimum of five days a week. So interesting. So we'd love to hear a little bit I know many of our listeners are DV advocates. What do they need to know about PrEP and the opportunities it presents in terms of what the advocacy looks like with survivors? I know you mentioned advocacy, Dr. Willie. I I don't know if you want to take that or um, either of you. Okay, I can start. So I think one, one thing that comes to mind is a situation in which I met a young lady who came in and, and said she wanted to be on um, HIV prevention medication. She wanted PrEP. Her partner, she was sure, had given her a sexually transmitted infection. And I did everything I could to help her, got her access to PrEP, only she never picked it up from the pharmacy. And fortunately for me, my role at the university allowed me a lot of time on my hands. And so I would just check in and say, hey, I'm just checking in, how are you? I didn't need to ask her about the medicine because I knew she'd ever picked it up. And it was throughout this process of me checking in on her, just asking about her, did she really come to disclose that she was in an abusive relationship, she wanted to get out, and did I really even start to understand that there are very few resources. So sometimes you become an advocate without realizing it. And it's kind of through this this kind of twisted role where people begin to trust you because you show that you care. So she came to me saying she wanted PrEP and that's not really what she wanted. She wanted to be tested for sexually transmitted infections, which she was tested for. They came back negative. But she really wanted someone to help her kind of forge this path out of her relationship. Um, And she disclosed that her partner was in law enforcement, so she couldn't, you know, call the police. I mean, she would she did a lot of the talking. I didn't ask questions because I didn't want to re-traumatize or I didn't want to push her away because I knew that was not my wheelhouse. So I did a lot of listening. And just in the listening, she would just disclose things and. The last time I talked with her, um, you know, she had her own house. Um, I haven't talked to her since then, and it reminds me I need to try to 
trying to track her, trying to track her down again. But I think just we have to realize that the advocates are not necessarily the people that are properly trained or that put that hat on every day. Sometimes you become an advocate solely because you're there and you have a listening ear. Mm, such a great message for the healthcare providers listening. Dr. Willie, any thoughts on what advocates should know about what this opportunity presents? Yeah, I, I, um, so we've been working on a couple of projects. So I, I am a true believer that we need to take prep and prep education out of the clinical setting and put it in the community settings. Cause I think, um, as Dr. Backus has really talked about, it's like building trust and rapport. And so one of the things that we've learned is DV advocates and agencies are really at the front line of doing this work and working with this population. And so it's just completely intuitive that we should partner <laughs> with DV advocates and agencies um, to talk about HIV or screening with women in abusive relationships and to talk about the utility of PrEP. So we started a very, very small, very, very small <laughs> pilot project in Connecticut where we um, creating a, d- a decision aid that's around PrEP and HIV risk. And we're creating it so it's actually advocate administered. So advocates are able to talk more easily with women um, who are interested at least about HIV risk, her behaviors, her partner's behaviors, and also talk about PrEP and then link them to a trauma-informed provider in the community if that's something that they're interested in. And so that's been an ongoing project that we're trying to do and we want to be able to expand it out because in our minds, like this could be a national model or program and we shouldn't shouldn't keep all the resources to just Connecticut. It should be something that should be distributed across the nation as long as it's effective and it's evidence-based. So I really feel like advocates are going to be the key, honestly, to getting prep to this population. At least that's just my rah-rah personal opinion. <laughs> no, I, I 100% agree. I, th- I think that that is, is an important point because when you then take it out of the infectious disease provider's wheelhouse and you make it so that this is not something that is stigmatized, but hey, this is something that all of us can benefit from, then you remove some of the barriers and you're actually casting a wider net so that there's a better net of knowledge, right? That's half the problem. So I did a research study when I was a resident and one of the questions I wanted to know was how many women know about PrEP? They thought I was crazy when I said it. Like women had never heard of PrEP. But if you ask a young gay male, they know about PrEP, right? And they're so much that they're probably tired of hearing about it. They know about PrEP. But when you ask a woman, they're like, well, what is that? How come no one said anything to me about it? You know, there's this this opportunity for education and then you increase the knowledge and then in, in increasing knowledge, you've indirectly increased access. Because once I know that there's something available to me, then whether you tell me how to get it or not, I can then go and be resourceful and try to find that service myself. But I have to know it exists first. Excellent. So this kind of brings me to the other end of the corollary. What, how can healthcare providers determine if PrEP is the right option for their patients? What, what do they need to be thinking about? And, uh, you know, we discussed a lot of the barriers, both structural and interpersonal. How can providers keep their eyes open in and, and terms of, uh, you know, um, prescribing PrEP? 
So I think the first problem is that providers have to realize that it's not their decision. My job is to educate. I give you the facts and it is up to you to decide if this is good for you. When we did our prep program and we rolled it out in Mississippi, people instantly wanted to know, how do you guys have so many women on prep? Well, it's because we just talk about prep to everybody who walks through the door. Whether you say you have sex with one person or two people or 20 people or 100 people, you are going to hear about prep when you walk through the door. And the reason is that in, in, in a perfect world, I'm going to walk into a clinic and I'm going to say, Dr. Willie, I had sex with three people yesterday and I didn't wear a condom. But the reality is I may not be that comfortable with Dr. Willie to tell her I'm sleeping with all those people, right? I may just say, oh, I had sex with one person in the last month and, I, and we wore a condom. I may say what I think is the correct answer and not necessarily the truth. But then Dr. Willie may say, well, hey, there's this opportunity for you to protect yourself. I tell all my patients, I've been married for 13 years. I know where that man is supposed to be, but I could not tell you if my life depended on it where he was. And that's just a fact, right? That's, that's just a fact. And so we have to decide for ourselves how much trust we're going to put in that, in that individual. But that's not my job to make that decision for anybody. My job is to just educate you and you can decide where you stand and where you, you know, where, if you need prep or not. I've had patients who say, no, nah, girl, prep's not for me. And then, you know, maybe one or two months later, they come back and they want to get more information. They want to follow up. They think that they're ready to start. They want to try it. And it really comes down to just creating this opportunity for education and knowledge, opening the lines of communication about a tool that's available. It is a tool because today it may not be good for you, but tomorrow, maybe it's a good option tomorrow. Exactly. And we just have to do that. Providers have to realize it's not their decision. So I, I want to add, so yes, we need also universal education around healthy relationships. So one of the um, programs that we're working on is really integrating this universal education around HIV prevention and healthy relationships because we've had conversations with providers and they'll be like, oh, none of my patients are in abusive relationships, but some of them have talked about like being uncomfortable negotiating condom use. And we're like, okay, so that might be a sign of an unhealthy relationship. Let's unpack that because those are going to be the patients too that we need to be talking about PrEP with and making sure that there aren't any barriers to accessing PrEP and other medical services. Um, so I just, I wanted to build on what Dr. Backus was saying because it's like, it's universal education that's going to be, I think, key in both health relationships and in HIV prevention. Thank you. That is definitely what we've been working on at Futures as well. You know, our cues approach, many of our listeners would have had a training in the cues methodology and the, the model of universal education, not waiting for disclosure, not waiting for somebody else to give you something in order to give them the resources they need is, feels very central to this, um, this discussion. And I, I'm so pleased that it kind of found its way there. I invite you for any final thoughts before we wrap up today, um, either about what people need to know or any reflections on having been doing this work for so long and really examining these intersections. Well, I think that I think it's just important just to remember that prep is an is an opportunity and it's a tool, and we have to just create access to it, and we have to just make sure that people are willing to talk about it. And we have people that are willing to educate people. And like Dr. Willie said, including that healthy relationships. I think people don't know what a healthy relationship is, right? 
So what I think is a healthy relationship may not really be a healthy relationship. And having that education on what a healthy relationship is may be the, the key that I need to realize that I do that I do need some prevention or I do need to um, maybe have some extra tools in my belt to make sure that I stay sexually healthy. You know, I think that's something that I spent a lot of time um, educating providers on. I helped um, in the clinic in Mississippi start their HIV prevention program. And I'm like, it's about sexual health. Like, I, if you're, that's it. Everybody needs to be sexually healthy. We're talking about mental health more now. We're talking about physical health. We need to be also including in the conversation sexual health. It is entirely up to everybody. The dentist can talk about sexual health. Mm, awesome. Last thoughts, Dr. Willie? Yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. So I'm going to try to keep it Keep it short. Um, I really feel like in order for us to move the needle forward, there has to be collaborations between healthcare providers and DV agencies. I just, I feel like that is really going to be key. So we did a study with women who experienced partner violence in the past six months, and we asked them, you know, would they use PrEP after telling them what it is and how it works? Would they use PrEP um, if a DV advocate suggested it or talked to them about it. And it was something like 55% of women were like, yes, we absolutely would. Um, and that was just so, that was just so impactful for me as a researcher, because I'm like, the women are telling us what they want. Um, and so I think it's our responsibility, again, to listen to them, to not make the decision for them and to listen to them and to make sure the education and the utility of PrEP is really spread across multiple sectors and not just in one specific sector. Again, getting back to the stigma. Um, and I also just want to note that like, PrEP is still very new research-wise, um, and there's still, because one of the questions we had gotten from advocates was, um, are there going to be kind of like long, long-acting long forms of PrEP? Like PrEP right now is a pill, it's a daily pill, and we know the reproductive coercion literature suggests that it's really difficult for women in abusive relationships to kind of take a pill every single day due to sabotaged tactics. So the long acting, that, that research around creating kind of long acting forms of PrEP is really going to be key. Um, and I think it's going to be important for us as public health professionals, DV advocates, healthcare providers to keep pushing um, that research forward. Because right now PrEP is really centered on the experiences of men who have sex with men. Um, and if we want these kind of long acting forms of PrEP, we have to make sure that women's voices are being centered, especially women who are in abusive relationships. So I guess my last plug to be selfish is like, we need to work together <laughs> to kind of address this issue and to make sure it becomes relevant. And I know um, Dr. Backus can speak to this more about even like the conversation around Truvada versus Discovy. Um, and how Discovy is not, there's no data to suggest that it works for cisgender women, but yet it's now federally approved and only for for, for males. Um, and how that puts women at a disadvantage because now women can only use Truvada. And it's just, we have to continue to keep centering the experiences of women because if not, we're going to get left out and that's not okay. We do have a long acting coming out. There is a long acting injectable that is, it should be coming out soon. And it's anywhere from four to eight weeks. But again, we're eliminating a barrier, but we're creating another barrier because it's a deep IM injection, meaning that you have to get it in your butt 
So you can't do it by yourself. So then I have to come in. There's an administration fee, you know, kind of other barriers are coming up. So I look for somebody to come out maybe in the future with a long acting in which somebody can self administer. And then that I think that would be the game changer. But yeah, more options. Exactly. Because pills are not for everybody. True. Thank you so much, both of you. This was such a lively and an enriching conversation. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Expanding the Continuum, brought to you by Futures Without Violence and the National Network to End Domestic Violence. If you like our show and want to know more about addressing the intersections of HIV and intimate partner violence, visit us online at ipvhealth.org and nnedv.org. I'm Surubi Kuke. See you next time.